Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Eloquent opium, that with thy potent rhetoric stealest away the purposes of wrath, and to the guilty man for one night givest back the hopes of his youth, and hands washed pure from blood. It's fascinating to be standing on the spot where de Quincey pictured that first encounter with the drug. This is junk territory. Junk haunts the cafeteria, roams up and down the block, sometimes half-crossing Broadway to rest on one of the island benches, a ghost in daylight on a crowded street. And we are, of course, looking at Shaftesbury Avenue, which was known in the 60s and 70s as the front line, because you would score heroin actually in the street. Confessions of an English Opium Eater, being an extract from the life of a scholar, was published anonymously in 1821 in two parts, and first published as a book a year later in 1822, exactly 200 years ago. The author was Thomas de Quincey, romantic essayist, literary critic, friend of Wordsworth and Coleridge, and an inveterate opium addict. De Quincey's confessions changed the popular view of opium in Britain, transforming it from a household medicine to an exotic, mind-altering drug. It also made de Quincey's literary reputation. Edgar Allan Poe, for instance, thought that the confessions showed a glorious imagination, deep philosophy, acute speculation, plenty of fire and fury, and a good spicing of the decidedly unintelligible. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics, the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode we're going to descend into the streets of Soho in London, exploring the soaring pleasures and abysmal pains of opium. And unusually for On the Road, as well as Confessions of an English Opium Eater, we're also going to discuss another book, the American author William S. Burroughs' first novel, Junkie. But before that, let me introduce our guest for today's episode. I'm walking towards Oxford Street in the heart of London, walking down Great Titchfield Street to where we're going to meet him. Good to meet you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to meet us. Our guest for today's episode is Will Self, 
the author of six short story collections and 12 novels, including Great Apes, How the Dead Live, The Book of Dave, The Butt, which won the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize for comic fiction, and Umbrella, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Will is Professor of Contemporary Thought at Brunel University in London, and is also a broadcaster, journalist, psychogeographer, and author of non-fiction works, including Junk Mail, which collected some of his journalistic writing on addiction, and most recently, Will, which came out in 2019, an exhilarating confessional drugs memoir. Will, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, really. Will, in your book, Will, you list the drug books that were on Will's shelf as a teenager, which included Junkie and Confessions of an English Opium Eater, which we'll be discussing today. In that book, you describe them as Will's consuming interest. Can you remember how you first became interested in, in books about drugs? Very difficult to say, really, Henry. You sort of, I mean, I was a compulsive reader, and I grew up in a household where the books were in kind of déshabillé, so that, you know, there was no, uh, there were no censorship, there were no trigger warnings, they were all just lying around the place. Amazing. And I just started reading. So I really don't know. I mean, it probably... I may first have read about drugs or drug experience actually in books that weren't even directly about it. You know, things like Joseph Heller's Catch-22 that refers to morphine, which I remember reading as a, a young child, or even something like Wilkie Collins, who of course was a lifelong opium And I, I remember reading The Woman in White when I was 12 or 13, and there's the marvellous old opium addict who says the least sound is exquisite torture to me you know and has this sort of right very de quincey uh like rarefied and intense sensibility so i kind of crept into it i mean the line is really a pun i mean when i say the the books are consuming interest sure. i was already by that age probably using drugs mm-hmm. a lot uh, at 16 i would say yeah it's interesting that there is this sort of kind of micro-genre within literature that starts with De Quincey and then runs through titles like The Hashish Eater by Fitzhugh Ludlow, Diary of a Drug Fiend by Alistair Crowley, which you reference in, in Will, up to Junkie and Naked Lunch by Burroughs and Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and so on. You know, how would you describe this genre? Because in some ways they're confessionals, in some ways they're memoirs, in some ways they're novels. You know, Junkie is both a novel and a biographical work. Your own memoir is written in the third person, and so the character of Will, the reader is constantly wondering how much of it is you. And hmm. so, do you see a thread that runs through these books? Yes, I do. I do see a thread, and I, th- I think it comes in part from just confessional literature generally. It goes back to Augustine of Hippo's Confessions in the in the fourth century. It goes forward through Rousseau's Confessions, of course, published posthumously, which, you know, De Quincey himself very obviously refers to at the outset of his book. So I think it's it's like a weird caduceus. On the one hand, you have a kind of essentially Christian uh, kind of dramatic arc of sin and redemption. You could even relate drug memoir to something like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, because they're often quite peripatetic drug memoirs for, for reasons we'll get on to. Uh, and then I think the other sort of side of it is, is more mystical and uh, also comes from a religious tradition, but is about, uh, and you see it reflected in things like the title of, uh, of Baudelaire's Paradis Artificiel, which is a 
adverting really the propensity and the ability of drugs to unlock the mystical faculty in people. So to transcend space and time, to take you uh, beyond, as it were, the kind of doors of perception, to, to bring in another famous right. drug memoir, um, Huxley's on yeah. the effects of mescaline. So I think these two impulses are there and are, and are commingled in all of the books that you refer to. With the exception of Ludlow's, which is just really a cheap rip-off right. of Quincy. <laughs> I love that image of a Caduceus, which De Quincey uses as well, right? He says at one point, in, in actually in the sequel to Confessions of an Opium Eater, he says, the true object in my opium confessions is not the naked physiological theme, but those wandering musical variations upon the theme, those parasitical thoughts, feelings, digressions, which climb up with bells and blossoms around the arid stock. And yes, it's, it is almost this kind of dance between the almost anthropological aspect of these books and then the kind of romanticised... Right, uh, and I think, I mean, we can, we'll, we'll doubtless talk more about it, but I think that once you start looking at it in, in literary terms, oddly enough, and you're right to raise the spectre of anthropology, what falls away immediately is the modern pathological conception of addiction, which is unfortunately the lens through which so much drug experience... Uh, is now viewed or intoxication of any kind mm -hmm. uh, and, and what you begin to understand and uh, is that the permissibility or not of the practice and the way in which it's either pathologized seen through either juridical or medical lenses is slightly besides the point amazing well but a brilliant setup for today's conversation I'm looking forward to it uh, Henry before we go yeah. we should really note that you know in the confessions very early on De Quincey writes about, I mean, he, he raises this spot where we are now at the south end of, of Great Titchfield Street. It's most significant for him psychologically, and it's where, uh, you know, he, he, he arranged to meet his great benefactress, Anne, as he called her, of Oxford Street, this young prostitute who kept him alive during this period of dereliction. But it's also where he talks, most interestingly to my mind, about this grid structure to the north, mm. which is the only grid structure in, in central London at all. Right, you know, and it's right. part of a plan that was, was laid out really around in the early 1800s, around the time he was, he was writing. It's part of Nash's whole grand scheme for Regent's Park and so forth. And he talks about looking up this long road uh, to the north and imagining his wife... Margaret at home in, the, in, cottage, Cumbria. in, in right. the cottage in Cumbria. And I think it's a marvellous kind of introduction to his Flannery in London because it does what so few bits of writing do properly, which is to locate the person properly in space mm. and time. He, he provides a parallax of both space and time that's a marvellous start to a walk. Well, yes, because that's one of the stranger things about the book, isn't it? That there are so many different timescales going on simultaneously. And so... He's in London writing and his wife's in Cumbria and he's, he's imagining, as you say, looking up these streets towards the north. But he's also remembering his time as a young man, having just run away from school and come to London destitute, spending time with Anne, who we'll talk about shortly, and waiting for her here. He describes this spot as, as a kind of safe space in the Mediterranean of the Oxford Street. It was well, a kind right. of uh, I mean, island. And again, you know, what is the significance of Oxford Street? Well, to De Quincey in the early 1800s, this had only lately been the road that, that uh, convicted right. criminals were brought by cart from Newgate Jail 
to Tyburn, uh-huh. uh, which is now, of course, uh, Marble Arch, where they would have been hung, often in quite large groups. And this was a, and this is what the road was known for. So, to a contemporary reader, the significance mm. of this place in psychogeographic terms would have been far, far greater and deeply linked right. with mortality, the punitive, destitution, all of these phenomena. That, that is fascinating. And of course, the other significance that Oxford Street has for De Quincey is that it's the spot where he first tastes opium. So let's go around the corner and discuss that. It was a Sunday afternoon, wet and cheerless. And a duller spectacle this earth of ours has not to show than a rainy Sunday in London. My road homewards lay through Oxford Street. And near the stately Pantheon, as Mr Wordsworth has obligingly called it, I saw a druggist's shop. So we've just come a little way down Oxford Street to stand opposite the site of the Pantheon, which in the early 19th century, when Thomas de Quincey was here, it was a big centre of entertainment. It was a big classical building with a large dome modelled on the Pantheon in Rome. It's now um, a branch of Marks and Spencer on Oxford Street, although, as we've just noticed, there's a big neon sign at the top saying the Pantheon. Mm. Um, So they're clearly kind of marking the fact that they're on the site of it. And it's here where de Quincey is walking in 1804, and he's being driven out of his mind by toothache. He's in terrible pain. And he bumps into an old friend from university, from Oxford, who recommends he tries opium for the pain. And just near the Pantheon is a, we don't know the exact location, but there's a druggist that he walks into. We have just walked past a branch of Boots, actually, so maybe we can imagine it was there, perhaps. And he buys some opium for the first time and tries it. It's sort of bizarre to think now how opium was thought of in 1804. You know, in the introduction to the Penguin edition of Confessions of an English Opium Eater, Barry Milligan says that um, before 1868, wholesale opium was available to any retailer including grocers, bakers, tailors, publicans and street vendors. Patent medicines containing opium were a staple of British homes, almost regardless of class, and included such familiar brands as Godfrey's Cordial, Collis Brown's Chloridine, Mrs Winslow's Soothing Syrup, that's my favourite one, and the Kendall Black Drop, which was favoured by Coleridge and Byron. It was just it was a thing. pervasive, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and still is, actually. I mean, one <laughs> of the things that uh, people don't realise is that its presence in the kind of folk uh, medicine cabinet leaves a lasting trace. And uh, it's a shame we're not a little bit further on in the summer because I'm sure even on this walk through central London I could show you opium growing somewhere. Uh, And if you look out in suburban gardens all over the country, but particularly in East Anglia, you'll see opium poppies still growing all over the place. Addiction is known to be a phenomenon. Physical dependency is certainly known to be a phenomenon with both opiates and alcohol. But the connection either with a physical malaise or, or, as it were, a moral illness is not quite so secure. Mm, and we'll true. talk about how that, mm. how that will change over I time. I mean, incidentally, that, that stuff by De Quincey is, is a crock of BS. <laughs> I mean, that is not how he started taking it. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, and, and, and the reason you can tell mm. is because it's like so many other people's accounts of uh, starting uh, to uh. take the drug, which is one of the, the, the similarities he shares with Burroughs 
uh, and more on that anon, is both of them figure the dispenser of the drug as an evanescent mm, character. So when he right. returns, he can never find the druggist yes, again. Yes, that's right. This is his little way of telling the reader that it's invented. Oh, but see. it's also his little way of saying the connection between the addict and the supplier becomes so intense and so emotionally freighted that it becomes subject to magical thinking. Mm. So the, the, the fact that the druggist, where he has his first hit, as it were, in modern parlance, also is an evanescent thing, is, is a structural and literary trope. It's not a true account. Whereas my own is, of course, completely true. <laughs> well, it's uh, true or not, it's, it's fascinating to be standing on the spot where de Quincey pictured that first encounter with the drug. And so let's, we've, we've mentioned Anne already. Let's move along Oxford Street and, and talk a little bit more about this character who figures so largely in the book. Yeah, where, where are we going? Soho Square. Soho Square. Jolly good. So De Quincey went to Manchester Grammar School as a, as a teenager and fell out with his guardians and with his teachers and left. He walked out and had a period walking in North Wales and then eventually found his way to London and lived here for many months, completely destitute, without any contact with his family or, or his guardians who would have supported him, but he chose to live the life of a homeless person. And he spent a lot of that time on Oxford Street with this extraordinary character who's haunted his memories ever since, who he calls Anne of Oxford Street, a young prostitute, probably also in her teens. He says, I'd walked at nights with this poor friendless girl up and down Oxford Street, or had rested with her on steps. And there's one particular night where he's, he's eaten so little for so long, he's feeling really weak. And he asks her if they can turn into this square, Soho Square. And uh, he says, I requested her to turn off with me into Soho Square. Thither we went and we sat down on the steps of a house. And he has this kind of relapse and she runs and gets a glass of port wine and, and restores him and he remembers this as an extraordinary moment. I wonder, would you be able to describe this square as it looks today and, and how it might have looked differently in, in 1804? Well, I mean, it, early it, for a start, let me just say that also I think that's a load of poppycock <laughs> right. from start to finish. Um, but we can come back to that. Soho Square, you know, everybody knows Soho's a hunting call. This was a hunting ground. Uh, there is a square laid out here, I think, in the late 17th century together with Golden Square right. and, of course, Covent Garden and New Square in the Inns of Court and Knightsbridge Square. These are the first squares in London. They're an import from France, like right. everything that we affect to hate, but in fact slavishly imitates. Uh, and, and it would have, at that point, uh, by the 1800s, of course, it was already on the skids, is the fascinating thing. So I would say probably in the 1800s there are still some fairly tony people in the area, but it's basically beginning to slide. You mm. know, uh, Mozart puts up in lodgings on uh, Greek Street, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not well-to-do, the Mozarts. They're travelling musicians. By the time Dr John Snow, the father of modern epidemiology, uh, is doing his experiments to, to, to try and find out how cholera is spread and, and honing it down to one pumper in uh, Berwick Street, this is a slum. Uh, already, De Quincey is an, an erringly, you know, homed in on what Burroughs calls 
junk territory right. on one of these transitional areas that is sliding in and out. I mean, as to why I think it's a, a load of poppycock, yeah. it's partly guilt by association. It reminds me very much of Orwell's passages on, on hunger and destitution right. in down there in Paris, London. Uh, what few people realise is that Orwell was actually without money for two weeks. <laughs> and his aunt lived around the corner. Yes, yes and brought him soup and sort of packages. Yeah, and I think, I think the, the truth of that is, yes, he did run away from school. Mm. Yes, he, might, he was probably short of a bob or two. But as in the confessions themselves, he's, he exhaustively details all of his posh connections, only to say... Not only that you shouldn't judge a man by his kind of high-born associations, but he doesn't rate that kind of status anyway, when quite clearly he does. But he also slightly gives the game away, and it's something that even persists typographically uh, in, into the current edition. The first time he mentions Anne, he gives a dash after her name, which is, of course, his way of trying to bring in... It's a very 19th century thing uh, for all sorts of reasons. You know, the 19th century is a much smaller society in that way to kind of hide identities of various people. So he clearly does know her last name. Right, and yes, he later claims not to. Yes. Later, in the same text, he claims not to have known it. So that's these are two clues to my way of thinking, for thinking he's massively exaggerating the degree of his oh, own Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yes, because what happens is he, he goes off to try and get some money from one of these well-off connections, and he, he says... You know, I'll come back in a few days' time. We'll meet at the bottom of Great Titchfield Street, where we've just been. And uh, every evening at six o'clock, let's both go there and we'll meet eventually. And then, in the text, he goes back and he just never meets her. And he has this rather moving line where he says, um, you know, doubtless we must have been sometimes in search of each other at the very same moment through the mighty labyrinths of London, mm. perhaps even within a few feet of each other. Mm. Well, this is, this is De Quincey's absolutely key insight i mean uh, and it's a brilliant one and and it's it makes it does make him in my view the founding father of psychogeography because what he's marking here is the point at which a city becomes anonymous uh, he's london in in uh, the, at the time he's writing is just about nudging up to a million inhabitants even in in the late 18th century it was probably still a city where you'd see a fair number of people you knew by the time you get to the early 19th century, that's kind of over. You're in an anonymous situation. His failure to find Anne is a function of the growth of the city itself. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. There's that moment in um, Daniel Defoe's travels around Great Britain where he sets out to walk the perimeter of London. And at that stage, it's still quite doable because it is still contained, but just... It's that moment, isn't it, at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th, where it's just on the brink of exploding. And yeah, I mean, Ian Sinclair went home every night. <laughs> <laughs> well, worse. <laughs> well, we're, so standing in Soho Square now, on the edge of Soho, let's head south now into the district of Soho and uh, into some of its streets. And often, when I walk at this time in Oxford Street by dreamy lamplight, and hear those airs played on a barrel organ which years ago solaced me and my dear companion, as I must always call her. I shed tears. So we've just headed out of Soho Square now, down into Greek Street, 
and we've stopped uh, just at the top of Greek Street because this is where uh, De Quincey, as a young man, lodged for a while in, in a house. And it probably would have looked like uh, one of these typical Soho houses that we're looking at across the street, these, these kind of late Georgian uh, brick-built terraced houses, rather narrow with three or four stories and, and rather plain, flat windows, no ornaments or, or bay windows, for instance. He's a bit mysterious about how the connection came up, but he says that there was a, a shady lawyer who, who allowed him some crumbs from his breakfast table. And he says, he says later in another work, he says, the house stands in Greek Street on the west and is the house on that side nearest to Soho Square, but without looking into the square. So that's more or less where we're standing now. And if we look across the road, Will, but the, the restaurant Noble Rot is in a pretty <laughs> rather typical... Suitably rather named, suitable. Yeah. Sort of, of wi- upscale wine bar. <laughs> Very much trading on that sort of trope of, of, of 19th century dissolution. Fades right, right. yes. And you know what I'm going to say about <laughs> the stuff in the confessions. It, it's absolutely all made up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is very sort of gothic. He says, yeah. uh, the house was large, and from the want of furniture, the noise of the rats made a prodigious echoing on the spacious staircase. Yeah. So, no, yes. I, I'm not doubting that, that something like it happened, mm. but I think we're in, we're in the realms of exaggeration and hyperbole. Why do you think it is that De Quincey is describing these scenes which you think aren't untrue? I mean, what's the motivation for that, do you think? Try and sit down and write something about the events in your life from, from 25 or 30 years ago. The actual, uh, you know, the minutiae will completely elude you. Uh, when I sat down to write my own memoir of my, my drug... But what I found was the affect is still there. The feeling is still there. Mm. And essentially, the, the feeling is the proverbial horse's head that you pull from the Baltic and is writhing with the eels of supposed fact and it's that way round that you do it so I'm not doubting that something like it happened, I'm just saying that it's not a, a full, it's not the actuality, right, right, that's right. the point Well while we're talking about that another of the reasons that De Quincey gives for taking opium is to induce dreams, he's, he's interested in dreams and, and kind of wants to encourage his own dream life and in, in fact, talks about how you know, you know how important it is to have a sort of certain type of mind, to have a certain type of dream. But this connection between dreams and intoxication seems to run through a lot of these mm. books. In fact, there's a great moment in Will where uh, you write, "Will's a dreamer. He knows that a dreamer who strongly identifies with what De Quincey said of his own opiate-addicted nature." that it took up residence in some secret chamber of his brain and from there engaged in a sickening commerce with his own heart. Yes, I mean, I think, I think you seized on the right passage, and it, it's a famous passage in, in uh, the Confessions as well. Uh, and, and De Quincey goes on and says, you know, well, if there were one alien nature that you felt within you, you could cope with that, but it doubles and redoubles and redoubles again. And, and it's a marvellously unsettling almost psychedelic image of kind of essentially breakdown and fracturing into almost multiple personality. What I think this shows, though, is, you know, Timothy Leary, the great apostle of uh, of psychedelic experience, talked about the effects of drugs being dependent on set and setting. So the attitude of the person towards the drug they're taking and the context within which they're taking it, including the kind of armature of societal proscription or mandation of, of the use of the drug. All of the, uh, What I'm driving at here is that drug experience is extremely labile. 
Right. You know, the, the, the way it's characterized in the confessions, you would think he was taking hallucinogen. I've never experienced anything like the visual experiences that De Quincey has had on opium, which is not to say that I don't believe in them. Oddly enough, I do. I believe in them much more than I believe in Anne of Oxford Street and the empty house of the lawyer and so on and so forth. Why do I believe in it more? Because I know from my own experience that the effects that a drug have are extremely labile on, on the psyche. What comes right through De Quincey's work and why he's not a, a, the writer of a minor classic. He's in fact one of the most important figures of the English Romantic movement and a really seriously important writer is of course that this lability of the, the, the kind of aneric component of his own drug use pulls him towards a you know, proto-form of Freudian dream theory, mm. repression, conception of the ego, right. conception of the unconscious. I mean, he is... I mean, Freud has many precursors, but De Quincey is probably the most important. And, and it's interesting that at the very start of Junkie by Burroughs, he brings in dreams as one of the reasons that he even considered opium in the first place. He says, you know, as a child I was really troubled by nightmares. He had dreams of a supernatural horror which seemed always on the point of taking shape. And then he, as a child he hears a maid talk about opium and how smoking <laughs> opium brings sweet dreams. And I said, I will smoke opium when I grow Absolute up. Absolute cobbler. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. And of course, the reason why you know it's complete nonsense is because he's ripped it off from De Quincey, right. as he has so much of Junkie. Is almost, I mean, I wouldn't say plagiarized, but his figuration is the earlier book. It's, mm. it's, it runs through Junkie like Brighton through Rock. Well, before we get to Burroughs properly, let's head further down Greek Street and talk briefly about another drug memoir where this street features heavily. So we're going to cross over this junction. We're standing opposite a shop that's called Wands and Wizard Exploratorium. Look who's walking by, a man who looks sinisterly like the beast himself, 666 Alistair Crowley. (laughs) That's true. Bald, wearing dark glasses, wearing a distempered and bilious linen jacket, (laughs) as if he's just stepped out of some kind of, you know, opium We've invoked him by... We've invoked uh, him with our magical interest. (laughs) But junk is, you know, heroin in particular, because of its status for a long time in the West as a kind of panapathnogen, a universal evil, uh, does induce in its users an affinity with the occult. Mm. Uh, and Crowley is probably the best example of this. But it's a phenomenon that every addict is familiar with, who, who is an addict in, in cultures that are repressive. Uh, and, you know, when I was a young heroin addict in, in the late 1970s and early 80s, the law was pretty heavy about class A drugs. There's two reasons, I think. One is the illegal nature of it, which puts you on a kind of par with people who are engaged in some kind of weird, non-orthodox, unscientific practices. Uh, And the other reason is that the state of being addicted is like being controlled by someone else. Right. You know, imagine it. You know, you know... It's perfectly nice, you're standing in Soho chatting about these books, but you know in an hour or two, if you don't stick a needle in your arm, you're going to be sweating, your bowels are going to loosen, you're going to feel terrible, you're going to feel an unutterable depression, uh, and that is beyond your control, Mm. and yet 
could be in your control. So you're constantly involved in acts of magical thought. If I don't step on the cracks, the dealer will be there and he'll have the smack. If I step on the cracks, he, he won't have it. And, and a lot of addicts certainly traditionally get into this magical thought. Of course, Crowley went considerably further and actually built a whole, you know, right. kind of order around so it. So we're talking about Alistair Crowley, of course. Yeah. Described by his own mother as the beast. <laughs> I think it was his father. He says oh, really, it, was it? Yeah, in the autohagiography, his sort of weird biography, he says um, people always ask me why I was called the beast. It's because my father oh, called God. me the beast. I have to say I called two of my sons beast for years. <laughs> For that reason, and, and eventually, yeah, one of them did turn around and say, "Why did you always call us beast?" I said, "Because of Alice." <laughs> right. So he became well. He became a great, you know, famous occultist and magician in the early 20th century. He founded the religion of Telemar after the Abbe in Rabelais, and he wrote the book Diary of a Drug Fiend, in, which was published in 1922, and. It's a novel, but it's, it's highly autobiographical, like many of these drug memoirs we're talking about. His alter ego is called Sir Peter Pendragon. <laughs> yeah, he ups his <laughs> like, class yes, a bit. Exactly. A bit like De Quincey, <laughs> funny that. But they're all, they're all, of course, you know, right-wing libertarians, which Ooh. I think is odd for people at this end of history, because we now, because of the 60s, we associate drug experimentation with a kind of, you know, cultural and political revolutions usually coming from the left. But, of course, Burroughs was a very, you know, famously, that despite being gay himself, you know, he did, he did not a swish or a fruit, a straightforward manly sort of homosexual, addicted to firearms despite, yes. you know, shooting his own wife, mad for the relaxation of gun control, wrote, wrote a famously emetic satire against Roosevelt called Roosevelt After Inauguration. Uh, there are whole scads of the Naked Lunch that are satires on social democracy. You know, he was very yes. influenced by visiting Sweden, which right. he loathed. <laughs> so in Diary of a Drug Fiend, which in the preface he says, this is a true story, it is a terrible story, uh, but it is also a story of hope and of beauty. It's a story of Peter Pendragon becoming addicted to heroin mm. and falling in love with someone called Louise Laylam, who also becomes addicted. And in the second section, I think, which is narrated by Louise, they're looking for somewhere to stay in London, and the taxi driver brings them to Greek Street, where they rent a dirty, dark little room on the ground floor. And, uh, you know, I imagine he chose Greek Street because of the connection with De Quincey. It strikes me as... Yes, possible. I don't know. I mean, the, the interesting thing for me about... I mean, it's not the best of these books by any means. Mm. Uh, he's not a great stylist, Crowley. He's not... He, I mean... One's impressed by the brio of his silliness, in a right. way. I mean, he goes at it full tilt. But, you know, he's a man who's going to die in Hastings. And I think that <laughs> fate is written all over him already, right. even in 22. But I think the interest of the piece really lies that it's on the cusp of prohibition. Mm. So the Harrison Act is passed in 22 in the right. States that finally makes cocaine and, and opiate drugs, injectable opiate drugs, completely illegal. Uh, 1916 Defence of the Realm Act in Britain, which was specifically introduced because of racial scares. It was partly a legislation that was aimed at black American doughboys, you know, American mm -hmm. private soldiers who, who were said to be using cocaine and debauching English girls with cocaine. It's also, like De Quincey, a kind of anti-Oriental thing. It's kind of 
you know, it's the Limehouse Chinese community yes. and their you know, opium dens over there. You have a little echo of it in, in Wild Story in Grey mm. in 1888. So Whereas, still, in fact, there were hardly any opium dens in Limehouse, were there? Maybe one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's all kind of an yeah. invention. So the other thing, of course, about uh, Diary of a Drug Fiend is mm. uh, they, they start off sniffing it Hmm. But their injectables are around, and that's a major change right. in the culture. And, and you know, in many ways, you can say that the, the modern drug culture is formed by the hypodermic quite as much as it is by the narcotic. Back to Leary's hmm. set and setting, it's always fascinating to me that the hypodermic syringe. Uh, arrives at exactly the same time as the Maxim gun uh, <laughs> in, in the late 1850s. Right, so okay. it, it arrives just in time for injectable morphine to alleviate the hideous wounds caused by the machine gun during the American Civil War and creates the first mass generation of addicts as well off the back of some of whom, of course, Burroughs almost still knew when he was using junk sort of not quite, 90 years later, or wow. that first great wave. But with Crowley's book, Diary of a Drug Fiend, you see all of that beginning to yes. come. Yes, and the very title, Drug Fiend, yeah. I mean, this yeah. was a new term that, you know, it was turning from a household medicine to a pastime, and now it was a right. kind of and, 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 uh, a vicious And the, the semantic drift is clear. And just while we're here talking about Crowley, you mentioned the Diary of a Drug Fiend in Will, and in fact, you use a line from it for your epigraph. How did you settle on that quotation, do you think? For well, I, I, the quote is about personal identity, and it's about saying, you know, he says words to the effect, sometimes I think that, you know, what we call I doesn't really exist. Well, he's actually leaning on Hume, the philosopher. There's a marvellous passage in the Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding where Hume says, you know, if I look inside myself, I shut my eyes and I examine my own thoughts and I try to find this I that I'm saying, I can't find it anywhere there. So what I loved about the Crowley insight is it takes you into what I think is the heart of existential writing in the 20th century, which is this acute sense of alienation from an identity that is forged by us, by a certain kind of culture, including a certain kind of capitalistic culture in particular. So as I was saying before, this is where the, you get the affinity between even, uh, frankly, a rather crap writer like Crowley and Sartre or right. Camus. Right. Uh, and, and where I feel the affinity and where you get the opportunity to take drug literature beyond drugs. Mm -hmm. in the 20th century you get the opportunity really to write a novel that's kind of universal in mm -hmm. a sense it's about anybody who feels alienated the, the addiction simply becomes in a sense a allegory for our imprisonment within the time money matrix itself well what a brilliant way to lead on to the novel that we have been discussing a bit already but perhaps the greatest uh successor to Confessions of an English Opium Eater is the novel Junkie by William S. Burroughs. So let's head round the corner to Frith Street to talk about that. Cool. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One afternoon, I closed my eyes and saw New York in ruins. Huge centipedes and scorpions crawled in and out of empty bars and cafeterias and drugstores on 42nd Street. Weeds were growing up through cracks and holes in the pavement. There was no one in sight. So we've paused on, on Frith Street for reasons that we'll discuss in a second, but this feels like a good moment to introduce Junkie properly in this episode. Junkie was published by William S. Burroughs in 1953 under the pseudonym William Lee, which was his mother's maiden name, I think, so not a very cryptic uh, pseudonym. It was an Ace original paperback, 35 cents. Ginsberg said of the Ace paperback line that it was mostly commercial schlup, and um, I think you have a copy of the, I've that got first the original, edition. Yes, right? It's bound back to back with a book, which again was <laughs> intended to balance the kind of awful right. character of Junkie, called Narcotics Agent by a, a guy called Marcus Helbrand, who was an ex-narcotics agent. Right, so right. one book is about kind of busting junkies, <laughs> and the other one's about Sort of two junkies. sides of the mushroom. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the publication history of Junkie is complex, and, and in brief, the manuscript that Burroughs was working on, he called Junk. And I think that's interesting, because really, in some ways, the book is about the drug rather than uh, the person. Yes, you don't really get much of it. He's not a very sympathetic character, yes. as a modern reader would say. <laughs> I didn't find much to identify with. <laughs> but then it was published, not Burroughs' decision, as Junkie, with an I.E., yeah. Confessions of an Unredeemed Drug Addict. So confession it's obviously a hark back to De Quincey. Now, you wrote the introduction to the 2001 Penguin Modern Classics edition of Junkie. I did, sadly, subsequently removed. Much to my chagrin, I have to say. Well, in that brilliant introduction, you say um, 
that from the vantage point of my own not inconsiderable experience of intoxication, I can say that Junkie is unrivaled as a book about taking drugs. 20 years later, do you feel that's still the case? Yes, absolutely. It's unrivaled. And it somewhat goes against what I said before about the extreme lability of the drug mm. experience. And I think that what Burroughs was so good at, uh, at summing up was particularly the experience of a certain kind of, as it were, clandestine, urban, uh, marginal heroin-taking culture mm. in, in societies where it's heavily illegal and heavily prescribed. And, you know, you've picked... You've unerringly zoned in. You see, we're in the psychogeographic phase because we're opposite. Uh, next to the Curzon Cinema on Frith Street, the side of it, uh, there's now a business called Yong Swan Art, a Chinese mm. business. That used to be a chemist called Halls. Okay. Okay, right up and until the 1980s. Halls had a branch here, a branch at Tyburn Cross, where the hangings took place, not far from De Quincey's Druggists. And those were the only two chemists in central London where you could buy hypodermic needles. So Burroughs would undoubtedly have known right. halls, unquestionably. Because this is where every junkie in central London came to buy, as we call it, their works. So, uh, and we are, of course, looking at Shaftesbury Avenue, which was known in the 60s and 70s as the front line, because you would score heroin actually in the street... You know, we've got a lot to thank the mobile phone for. Um, <laughs> uh, you'd actually score it in the street. And indeed, I've scored heroin in Shaftesbury Avenue. So, you know, we're, we're absolutely in so junk the territory. the heart of junk yeah. territory. Yeah. Right. Well, yes, of course, because William Burroughs did live in London on and off for 14 years. Yes, that's right. Junkie is set in New York and then New Orleans and then Mexico City. But after that, he went and lived in Tangier for a while and then in Paris. But then he came to London in 1960 because he'd heard about a doctor here, Dr. Dent, who had this new form of heroin cure, new treatment, using another drug called apomorphine. And he wrote the novel Wild Boys in, in London. And he lived most of that time in a rather smart block of flats on, on Duke Street in St. James's. As you say, he would have come to Soho a lot. And one of the places which he came was uh, London's first espresso bar, uh, we're standing opposite it now. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. And as part of this magical thinking that we've been talking about, Burroughs took against Mokabar and decided to kind of launch a, a kind of psychic curse at the bar. And he has this wonderful description, which uh, is published in The Job, where he says, Operation carried out against the Mokabar at 29 Frith Street, London, W1 beginning on August the 3rd, 1972. Reason for operation was outrageous and unprovoked discourtesy and poisonous cheesecake. <laughs> now, to close in on the Mokabar, record, take pictures, stand around outside, let them see me. So he'd start by taking pictures and audio recordings of the space. Then playback was carried out at a number of times with more pictures. And he had this idea that if he recorded reality and then played it back over the top of reality, then he was kind of, he'd cause some sort of fracture in the That's right, fabric yes. of reality. Well, of course, what he's messing with at the moment, and it's, you know, it, you don't have to be a junkie to find everything connected, although it does help. Of course, what Burroughs is messing around with during this period is Dianetics and Scientology, and he's, he's adapted some of L. Ron Hubbard's ideas, which, of course, are an attempt to mechanicize Freudian psychoanalysis 
uh, you know, so the whole idea in, in Dianetics and then Scientology is of uh, doing these readings whereby basically you're wired up to a lie detector and, and you have to say things like, I have no homosexual impulses, and then if you, you get a kick... Uh, on on the, on the lie detector, then you you aren't clear, you know. So again, it's an attempt to to technologize psychotherapy in that way. Yeah, because of course he's he's a um, fully signed up to the idea that the psychic is the real. He's a fully signed up mystic. So of course, if you record over something in that way then you create a new reality. So that's how his magic takes and it, flight. It, it seems. That impressively effective because <laughs> he started in August 1972 he says um, playback was carried out a number of times their business fell off they kept short and short hours October 30th 1972 the mocha bar closed yeah so he, I don't know I mean, well, 90% knows? of food businesses shut in the <laughs> yes, first year true. I mean it's a bit like the stop clock isn't it it's true <laughs> you know. but talking about junkie I feel like if Confessions of an English Opium Eater is, is so brilliant at talking about the the experience of being high on a drug. I feel like what Junkie is extraordinary at is the experience of being addicted. Yeah, it's much better. Uh, you have a great description in Will where you say that addiction is just that, a ceaseless and Sisyphean go-round. Well, back to Camus, of course, mm, the right. Sisyphus. Yes, of course. You know, I mean, what I'm really referring to here is that it, it's almost like being in an accelerated synecdoche of the capitalist system itself. You know, and Burroughs has this great line in Junkie, you know, junk is the ultimate product. You don't sell it to people, you sell people to it. Right, you know, yes. So again, you get the inversion of this tale of alienation yes. under late capitalism. Junk becomes, at that point, a kind of bizarre figuration of the capitalist economy, not a drug at all. You know, so... I think that's what I'm uh, adverting to in, in Will. Yeah. That, you know, I must say that, of course, mm. people will be aware the experience of being addicted to a drug that you're physically addicted to is like OCD. You know, the main psychic component of it, and it's something that De Quincey doesn't really talk about properly. He talks about the kind of tedium, colossal tedium vitae. He has these good descriptions. He, he leans on Piranesi a lot, and Piranesi's mm, right. famously kind of involved and labyrinthine prison etchings for this idea of a kind of hideous mise en abime of kind of tedium in that way. But, you know, what he doesn't really get close to, I think, is the intense uh, obsessional thought involved in addiction. You can't get it out of your head. And, of course, the compulsive action. You know, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to use, I'm yes. not going to use. Oh, look, I've got a syringe in my arm. How the hell did that happen? And in my own memoir, it starts with, you know, the, the, the Will character says it's like you're riding in the train and you realise all the points have been welded. You can't, you have no mm. possibility to change anymore. And again, mm. back to the existential sense. There's that great bit in Junkie where... Uh he says, why do you need narcotics, Mr. Lee, is a question that stupid psychiatrists ask. The answer is, I need junk to get out of bed in the morning to shave and eat breakfast. I That's, need it to yeah. stay alive. Right. And so it's, it's like somebody saying, why do you need capitalism, Mr. <laughs> Lee? No. Uh, I mean, actually, I think a more uh, eloquent way is in, is in Cocteau's marvellous book about his mm. own addiction, Opium. Right. Uh, where he says to talk to a man about giving up opium is like trying to discuss the weather with someone who's just jumped off the building and is falling past your window. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, we've mentioned the idea of junk territory as a, as a concept. Let's move around the corner to another Soho street to talk a little bit more about that. Here we are. So we've just come round the corner into Dean Street. We're standing opposite number 41, which is now a restaurant called Duck Soup. But this used to be the location of a great old Soho institution, the Colony Room Club, which you've written about several times. Yes, well, it, it, made, it made a deep impression on me, actually, <laughs> Henry. I mean, I was a kind of not particularly sheltered 17-year-old, and, and my friend at Oxford very sadly died in the mid-'80s, uh, not directly of drugs, but, you know, they were obviously in the mix. Um, he was the relief barman at the colony room. So I started coming to the colony in, in 1979. It was already very well, I mean, it was 30 years old yeah, by then. Yeah. It had been founded by a woman called Muriel Belcher, great name, crazy name, yes. crazy girl. The standout luminary, I mean, there were all mm. sorts of ne'er-do-wells. You know, Geoffrey Bernard, who wrote the column for the, for the Spectator, Low Life, the photographer John Deacon, uh, Tom Baker, the Doctor Who actor, all of these kinds of people. But the absolute standout luminary was Francis Bacon, the painter, who you know, had his spot by the bar and was, was always in there. In fact, if we were transported in time back now, 43 years, we would see Bacon in the right Through the window, window. Yeah, wow. on the first floor. So I started coming here. I have to say, the colony, until after Ian Board's time, it was drink. It was all right. about alcohol. Yeah. And indeed, there was a considerable amount of aggression towards anybody who used heroin from, really? these, okay. from these ludicrous drunks. <laughs> right. Yeah, so Ian Board would say when I walked, he'd say, Oh, you can't get out of here, you squatty little junkie. I mean, his nose was a sort of networked nevus of bloke, broken <laughs> blood vessels. His, his cirrhotic liver oh, was God. as big as a sort of football. Uh, you know, the, the kind of levels of chronic alcoholism in the place were extraordinary. And, of course, we're just along from the Groucho Club, which, you know, in the 90s, I think, it's fair to say, became a byword also for excess, but fueled entirely by cocaine, again, mm -hmm. not, mm. not junk. You wrote the novella Foi Humaine about the Colony Club in your book of short stories, Liver, but it also features in, in Will, quite, it's a central location in the third chapter yeah. of yes, the book. Yes, yes. And your friend, a version of your friend appears in the book and is, that That's story right, runs yes. through. Yes. But while we're here in this place which has a lot of resonance for you, can we go back to this idea of, of junk territory as a sort of, um, you know, it's an idea that Burroughs raises a couple of times in Junkie. He says that he can censor junk neighbourhood, almost like a dowser locates hidden water. He says, I'm walking along and suddenly the junk in my cells moves and twitches like the dowser's wand. Junk here. Yes. And at another point he describes, he says, as the geologist looking for oil is guided by certain outcroppings of rock, so certain signs indicate the near presence of junk. So are you conscious of similar <laughs> junk territory? Is that true? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> I mean, is that well, I mean, does that ring true to you? Yeah, absolutely. But we've a lot to blame the mobile phone for because it's mm. deprived us of junk right. territory in a way, or rather, it's made everywhere junk territory. Mm. There are still areas where there is a street addict scene, and actually, this remains one of them. I mean, one of the big 
problems for Soho. You know, they tried to put exclusion orders on a lot of addicts now. You used to see them pictures up in the, the community association offices up towards Brewer Street of all of the kind of malefactors who weren't allowed in the area. Um, there's still a street scene here. We can uh, probably walk not far from here, just over towards Paradise Gardens, suitably enough, and, and we might find addicts still using in the street. I mean, I thought it was a rather good touch that we, when we first set up on Oxford Street, a man who almost certainly lost his leg through shooting up in his arteries wheeled his wheelchair in front of us. So, you know, uh, that was a rather kind of haunting image to start with. But in a way junk territory throughout the 1980s and then into the 1990s and the new millennium dissolved into the necrotic body, uh, the necrotic underbelly of the society generally. Because look at the stats, you know, when the British did one good thing, which was the Rolleston Committee in the 1920s, despite the prohibition of heroin, recognized that addiction itself was a mental health problem. And they made it possible for addicts to receive maintenance doses if they registered. And I think I'm right that even by the early 1970s, there were only about 500 or 1,000 registered addicts in the country. Okay? Gosh, gosh. And, and then, then it exploded. One of the vectors was American GIs, and it really was, who, or rather people fleeing the draft who came here. But the main vector came in the late 70s, and it was the fall of the Shah in Iran. And opiate use was endemic in, in pre-revolutionary Iran. And a, and a lot of the middle classes, and they probably the Iranian community in Britain don't really want to hear this, uh, moved a lot of their money in heroin. Uh, and junk territory in, in the early 1980s was the bottom end of the Edgware Road, and it was around right, those kind of right, juice bars yes. like Marouche. You'd score in there off wealthy young Iranian guys. Because it was brown heroin, because the fall of the, the Shah's regime also opened up what's called the Golden Crescent, which is the uh, opium-producing regions in Pakistan, tribal areas with Afghanistan. Uh, and the new route for heroin was no longer the French connection through the mafia from the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia. It was the silk, old silk route right. up through the Balkans and into Europe. So it's why, for example, the most powerful people to this day in the junk trade in London are Turkish Cypriots, though they won't thank me to, <laughs> to, to mention it. But it's a fact. That's a fascinating international survey because I find it interesting that when Burroughs was writing to Ginsburg about Junkie, he said, you might say it was a travel book more than anything else. And there's a sense in which it is a kind of a field report back from entering this territory and right but 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 you know I, early on i sort of mentioned bunyan's pilgrim yes Progress. right yes but you know the, the the main animating principle of the addict life under conditions of prohibition uh, is what's called the geographical mm. so the geographical is undertaken for two reasons either to go somewhere where there's lots of it or to go somewhere where there's none of it. For obviously, so that impels you on. Mm. And all addicts, you know, my own memoir has me as a relatively young man mm. charging all over the world. I'm in India, right, I'm in right. outback Australia for those countervailing reasons. I'm in outback Australia to escape junk. I'm in India to take it. Right. Know, so. Sure, So sure. that's what gives you this, this uh, tour de raison uh, is undertaken. The other fascinating way in which Burroughs talks about junk territory is he starts to imagine junk almost as a kind of 
personification, a kind of figure who is stalking the streets. He says, junk haunts the cafeteria, roams up and down the block, sometimes half-crossing Broadway to rest on one of the island benches, a ghost in daylight on a crowded street, which yeah. is a phrase that you use for your final sentence it's of your memoir. my final line of the yeah. memoir, yes. But, but, but the way I use it in my memoir, I think, is truer to what Burroughs is really saying, because what I say in the memoir is... I'm, I'm imagining what this character I've made out of my young self is thinking about his dead friend. And he's thinking, you know, what would my dead friend think about me in the future? He probably never thought of me as a middle-aged man. Yes. Whereas I'm always going to think of him as a young man. He's going to have that view. And indeed, it's true. My friend died in the mid-80s. I think of him most weeks, and we're talking about him now. And in a way, he has more reality than the counterfactual of the middle-aged will. And I think the insight, again, is a fundamentally existentialist insight, which is the only freedom you have exists between your ears. You, you, you live in a very, very powerful... And you're condemned to that sense of freedom. And the great thing about heroin addiction, if you have eyes to see it, is that it pulls to the surface the essential conundrum of human existence in a particularly vivid way. So, you know, Burroughs may be talking about junk haunting, but what he's really talking about is the idea of the autonomous individual that in any way can transcend the moment. When I closed my eyes, I saw an oriental face, the lips and nose eaten away by disease. The disease spread, melting the face into an amoeboid mass in which the eyes floated, dull crustacean eyes. Slowly, a new face formed around the eyes, a series of faces, hieroglyphs, distorted and leading to the final place where the human road ends, where the human form can no longer contain the crustacean horror that has grown inside it. I watched curiously. I got the horrors... I thought, matter-of-factly. So we're just walking now through Gerrard Street in the heart of what is now Chinatown, just mm. south of Soho. Yes, under, under the sort of uh, ceremonial arch. And I think people feel it's so well-established now, London's Chinatown, that they don't realise it actually only dates from the 1960s. Yes. Uh, so it's a relatively recent phenomenon. But it's, it feels rather appropriate, actually, given what we were saying earlier, that for De Quincey, the opium was always associated with ideas of China and the East. And, uh, and of the Orient. And, yeah. of course, the, the title of the book is, a, in a way, a deliberate riposte to the image of, you know, opium eating. Of course, he doesn't eat it. He drinks it dissolved yes, right. in alcohol to form a tincture called laudanum. But, you know, opium is associated with the Orient, uh, in the English mind. Again, I say, as I say, unfairly. Uh, and, and it was is. the English selling it to China. Well, exactly, and very unfair in terms of the kind of, uh, you know, what we call nowadays the optics of the situation, <laughs> yes. which were quite the other way around. British imperialism, in a way, made China an addict country, and right. kind of frighteningly in that way. But the association is there. You know, when it comes to othering, imperialism sort of others indiscriminately, doesn't it? So, you know, really beginning with Montesquieu's Persian letters in the late 17th century, the figuration of the Orient is what we call the Near East. Edward Said would probably uh -huh. say near to what exactly? Right. You know. <laughs> uh, so, it's, again, it's back to this idea of 
you know, real physical geography and a kind of psychogeography, the psychogeography mm. of imperialism, the psychogeography of the idea uh, of associating negative things like withdrawal from the drug, what De Quincey calls the pains of opium, or, yeah. or for boroughs, you know, in Mexico City, he has these kind of awful visions of kind of Mayan and Aztec yes. civilization. These kind of faces eating yeah, themselves faces being eaten away. Eaten away by disease. And, and all of this imagery really comes from, uh, you know, from what we would call othering. Right. It comes from Orientalism, as Said would define it. It comes from a need to feel that some people are not just inferior, but they're kind of potentially evil and malevolent. So, yeah, I think poor little Tommy would, <laughs> would have been very freaked out by that. Right, time that travel experience of, yes, Chinatown. I expect so. Yeah. yeah, something else I wanted to ask you, Will, is um, we've, we've talked about how de Quincey's view of the city was transformed by taking opium. And then we've talked a bit about how Burroughs saw regions of the city transformed by opium itself. But in Will, you imply that the, the sort of boundary between the city and the user dissolves in some way. There's moments where the skin of the city becomes the same as the skin of Will. Yes. It's a very, it's a, it's a brilliant and, and sort of disorientating effect. For me, this, this image is to do with the peculiar horror of withdrawal, yes, because mm. back to this existential problem, think about it. Paradoxically, when you're in active addiction, you know, <laughs> it's like Lady Bracknell, isn't it? Do you smoke, <laughs> Mr. Worthing? I'm afraid I do, Lady Bracknell. Good, every young man should have an occupation, <laughs> yeah? So when you are an addict, whether it's cigarettes or heroin, you've got a job, right? right? Yes. The, minute, the minute the heroin addiction's gone, and of course you haven't got a job, you're in fact in a dirty squat, <laughs> peeing in a bottle with one light bulb that you take from one, you realize that you, you are the derelict city itself in a peculiar way. So. My book is almost all about withdrawal. It's hardly about... Yes, right. There's no evocation, I think, in the book at all of him being high. Right. Very slightly. I mean, his first use, I think, is detail. But other than that, it's glossed discursively. But really, it's a book about not just about being addicted, but withdrawing. It's all about the pains of opium. And actually, that's a good distinction between the books we've been talking about today, that... That, that De Quincey, as I was saying, is sort of more about the, the highs. Burroughs is more about the sort of the sort of on the life of addiction and the way of life of, of being mm. an addict. He wants, and as you say, yours is yeah. yours is about the withdrawal. It's the kind of come down. He wants to avoid what he knows to be the case, and which is a fundamental addict insight, which is Schopenhauer, the philosophers, which is that there is no such thing as a positive pleasure. There's only mm. the absence of pain. Right. You know, you as a young parent know there is no such thing as a decent night's sleep. <laughs> There's only when the baby's asleep, which is a bit better than when he's crying. <laughs> right. Yeah? But as in so much, I think he's engaged in special pleading. There's a point where somebody asks him how he became an addict, okay? Mm. Okay, so there's this partial and, and idiotic justification how somebody from his background. But at one point, he says in, in Junkie, I became an addict, I think, because I had no strong inclinations in any other direction. <laughs> yes, I think right. that's right. Yeah, I, well, I mean, that's just mad. <laughs> what sort of person becomes addicted to a habit-forming drug? And the answer is someone who's in pain. 
mm. if it's an anaesthetic. I mean, right. De Quinty goes on at great length about the anaesthetic capabilities uh -huh. of opium. And just as anybody who's ever used opiates, which is most people now, for medical reasons, sure. will tell you, when you're in pain, physical pain, opiates just kill the pain. They don't make uh -huh. you euphoric or high. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So. The bit that makes you euphoric is the killing of your emotional pain. And people who become addicted to heroin are unhappy people, let's face it. And they were unhappy before they got addicted. And of course, once they are addicted, they're even more unhappy. Right, yes, God, it's a cycle. <laughs> yeah. Now, we've talked, about, we've talked about addiction, cycles of addiction and, and withdrawal symptoms. Let's talk about getting out of the habit and, and the cure. You know, in Junkie, Burroughs says um, the reason it is practically impossible to stop using and cure yourself is that the sickness lasts five to eight days. Twelve hours of it would be easy, 24 possible, but five to eight days is too long. And that, that novel is full of examples of people who can't kick the habit, who try. Yeah. And, and, you know, he repeatedly says he's kicked and then, and then yeah. falls back into the cycle. The fifth part of, of Will is set in rehab. Yeah. And you have an interesting line at, in that section where you say, how can you know whether your urge to confess comes from you yourself or from the very golem that's been summoned into existence by your addiction and that resides in a secret chamber of your psyche? Yeah. And it, it's interesting to me that, as you say, you're writing from a position of having dropped the habit. Where do you think the urge to write about one's drug use comes from? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> well, for a start, I, I went back and used heroin for another decade after that period in rehab, probably longer, and, and in, in some ways worse, in some ways better. I never went back to an injectable habit. It's probably why I'm still alive. And I discovered crack cocaine as well, which hadn't really been around in, during my first period of addiction. So that was pretty devastating. So I think when I'm talking about the Will character, what I think he realizes, and it is something that they say in that method of, of treatment, which is based on the 12-step programs of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and it's called the Minnesota Method. You know, they have this big problem that is the addict complying or have they had? And the Will character is really pointing to a religious problem mm -hmm. here. He knows in his heart of hearts that he hasn't renounced it fully. Indeed, I, I hadn't renounced it. Everything Burroughs says is not true. <laughs> it, it, and, it, and it's not true because, of course, the physical component of kicking the drug is a walk in the park. It's like, a, even with a quite bad habit, it's a moderately bad bout of flu. It's like a week of sweats and... Uh, the problem is, is, is you are returned vis-a-vis -vis with exactly the problems that got you into it in the first place and you no longer have the means at your disposal of anaesthetizing yourself against those problems. And of course you've acquired a great many more problems yes, right. <laughs> during your period of addiction. So the problem is psychological, it's not a physical problem. All of the addicts who try and characterize it as physical are engaging in the special pleading of people who don't want to address their psychological problems. And it's interesting that both De Quincey and Burroughs claim explicitly that they have given up, don't they? Like De, De Quincey says, I've struggled against this fascinating enthrallment with a religious zeal and have at length accomplished what I'd never yet heard attributed to any other man, have untwisted almost to its final, almost, almost. to its final links, the accursed chain which fettered me. Yeah. And Burroughs too, he says, I woke from the sickness at the age of 45, calm and sane and in reasonably good health. 
But of course, we know both of them used uh, used drugs yeah, till I mean, the end Burr's, of their lives. Burr has had a problem, a period of sporadic using. It's true, between his very bad addiction. So I think probably. You know, when he was in London, he wasn't using all the time. He had various habits. He then became re-addicted in New York in the early 1980s and then was on it till death or on substitutes, yeah. yeah. We're just turning off Wellington Street into Tavistock Street, just heading out of Covent Garden now. And we're looking south across the road to what is now the restaurant Cafe Murano. And there's a blue plaque on the wall which says Thomas de Quincey, spelt without an E in the surname, which is a bit unconventional. And it says this is where he wrote Confessions of an English Opium Eater. In his introduction to the Penguin Classics edition, Barry Milligan says that uh, progress on the book was impeded by de Quincey's chronic health problems and equally chronic financial ones. And periods of prostration were punctuated by sudden changes of lodgings to avoid arrest for debt. One hideout was in a building near Covent Garden that now bears a plaque celebrating the distinction. So that's where we're standing now, and this is where De Quincey at least wrote some of uh, the book that we've been talking about, which feels like an appropriate location to finish our, our story today. As we said earlier, the timescales in that book jump around all over the place, mm. and he says at one point, I am now in London, and I'm a helpless sort of person who cannot even arrange his own papers without assistance, and I am separated from the hands which are wont to perform for me the offices of an amanuensis. There's something which strikes me as similar between Opium Eater and Junkie, which is that there's a wife in the background of both of them. Mm. De Quincey's Margaret is, is not with him in London. Mm. She's at their cottage in Cumbria, and he, he mentions her fleecingly. Mm. And Burroughs, it's rather strange that um, by the time he's writing Junkie, he has, in a, in a drunken accident, shot his own wife. Was it? Ah. Well, there's a question for you, because, because his wife keeps appearing in you know, little glimpses, and it's rather disconcerting. You're not you're not sure what their relation is in the book. So tell us about... Um, well, I, I think, you know, I don't think Burroughs is a terribly nice man. I don't, you know, I think, um, you know, I didn't find him very sympathetic. I mean, least sympathetic of all was, was killing his wife. Mm. Uh, okay, you might want to put an accidental formulation on it, but what kind of a maniac, when he's drunk, tells his drunk, speed-addicted wife to put a shot glass on her head and then fires from three or four metres away a pistol that he knows to be defective and to aim low while he's drunk himself. So, you know, Burroughs in, in, you know, throughout the rest of his life becomes rather like Crowley. It becomes the sort of hideous portal out through which this already the magical thought of the addict prolapses into something even darker and more horrible. He invents this idea of the ugly spirit that possessed him when he did it. But really, the ugly spirit is his own psychopathology that has possessed him. The figuration of Joan Volmer, to give Burroughs' wife her full name, and she deserves her due because it was a, a, a disgusting thing, I think, really, uh, you know, she's not mentioned in the text because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't suit his purpose. He doesn't want to fess up to the fact that he's 
He's got a wife, he's got kids, he's got responsibilities. He wants to be this existential character. I think we would have found De Quincey more congenial in some ways. I think, he, I think he quite clearly loves his wife. When he refers to his wife, it's in a loving way. As we know, Burroughs was really homosexual, so, or mostly homosexual by inclination. So you know, what was he doing with this woman anyway? Uh, so there's all of that, I think, is packed into that. But, but also there's a kind of... You know, it's it's sort of horrible in Junkie because there's the same textual and temporal instability uh, in the book because at the end of Junkie, he starts writing in the present tense. Mm. He's still, yes, he's, he, does, he yes. says, you know, he talks about his, his heroine-using partner, Dave Tichero. He says... You know, there's a there's a shrine called the Black Madonna, and all the junkies go and visit. He says Dave is going to visit. It's in the present tense, mm, and, and he says, ju- "I am separated yeah, from my I wife." I am or, separated from my yeah. wife. He killed her, right? And it's ironic, isn't it? But one of the very few moments that William Lee's wife enters that narrative is when he starts using again, and she tries to throw his his equipment away, and he grab he's violent. He grabs her and throws her to the bed, and it's this moment of violence which. Almost sort of, uh, you know, t- it shocks you in the book, and it's interesting. But for that first Ace paperback edition, that is the image they chose. That's the image, yeah. The I'll, I'll have to send you the cover I'd so love you can to see, see it. it yeah. yeah, that's what they depict on the cover of the book. Is this moment, and and it's the right moment. The illustrator had a fantastic eye because, of course, it's the thing that gives the lie. Burroughs wants you to believe that he's given up. Once you realise he didn't ever give up, then the whole book unravels in a certain way, I believe, as an account of addiction. And, and, and I would say that, you know, it's a complete paradox. While I simultaneously think it's probably the greatest book ever written about heroin addiction, I also stolidly maintain that the greatness of book has nothing to do with it being about heroin. <laughs> well, I feel like that's a good way to end this conversation. So... Will, thank you so much for taking the time to walk through Soho with us today. Could I just add an arrière-pensée in a rather De Quincean fashion? Yes, of course. Of course, if we say that Burroughs' junkie is about junk and Thomas De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater is, in a sense, about opium, Mm. and and we talk about them, you know, kind of also not being books about that but Mm. being books about this existential crisis, of course, junk has not only never left us, it's mutated. It's mutated at a cellular level. It's mutated into the opioid drug crisis that has torn the hell out of America, for example, in the last 15 or 20 years, courtesy of Oxycontin. Mm. So you can see this idea that the thing that mutated at a cellular level was junk itself. Mm. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, for walking through Soho and for sharing such eloquent and fascinating insights into these books we really appreciate it it's been a genuine pleasure almost as good as a hit of smack (laughs) (laughs) thank you many thanks to Will Self to Naxos Audiobooks for the clips of Gunnar Kothery reading from Confessions of an English Opium Eater Whole Story Audiobooks for the clips of Mark Nelson reading from Junkie and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott, the producer is Andrea Rangecroft, and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
and I'll leave you with a final dream. The last book that William S. Burroughs published in his lifetime was called My Education, A Book of Dreams, which was a collection of 35 years of his dreams, starting in 1959 when he published perhaps his most famous novel, Naked Lunch. In the first dream in the book, Burroughs is in an airport, hoping to board an aeroplane, when a woman dressed in a grey-blue uniform with the cold, waxen face of an intergalactic bureaucrat bars his way, saying, you haven't had your education yet. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.